Hi, I'm Mackie Gates, Executive Director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Welcome to Justice Matters. On today's episode of Justice Matters, co-host Matthias Rissa speaks with Shoshana Zuboff, author of the acclaimed book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power. They discuss a number of topics from her landmark book, including the idea of surveillance capitalism, the harm of disinformation, the future of democracy in the digital era, the implications of AI and the likes of ChatGPT, the status and expectations of government regulation, and where she sees hope for democracy in the power of the people. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Scholar, writer, activist Shoshana Zuboff is the author of three major books, each signaling a new epoch in technological society. Her recent masterwork, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power, has been a bestseller around the world and has been translated into 27 languages representing every world region. The Age of Surveillance Capitalism has been called one of the most important books of the 21st century, acclaimed as the tech industry's silent spring, and welcomed as both does capital and the wealth of nations of our time. This work has been recognized with the Axel Springer Award, the Electronic Privacy Information Center Lifetime Achievement Award, and the Global Privacy Assembly Giovanni Buttarelli Award. The Age of Surveillance Capitalism has generated a lot of attention around the world, both because of its powerful revelation of digital century capitalism so far and its societal implications and because it has something to say to each of us very personally. After all, the main message is that whenever we are connected to electronic devices that collect any kind of data about us, These data become available for collection and marketization by the people who run the pertinent platforms. In this way, given the ubiquity of use of such devices, our whole lives become commodified. Late last year, Zuboff published an article in the journal Organizational Theory titled Surveillance Capitalism or Democracy, the death match of institutional orders and the politics of knowledge in our information civilization. This article continues the argument offered in her book, and it is the primary subject of our conversation today. I'm Matthias Rüsse, Director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy and co-host of Justice Matters, and I am delighted to be here with Shoshana Zuboff. Welcome, Shoshana. Thank you so much for having me, Matthias. Shoshana, Surveillance Capitalism is a long book. Could you remind our audience here of some major themes you discussed there so that we have those in front of us as we move further in, or maybe just so it's a way of asking, what is Surveillance Capitalism? Well, uh, when it comes to what is Surveillance Capitalism, uh, we talk about the capitalism and we talk about the surveillance. So let me start with the capitalism dimension The capitalism piece of surveillance capitalism emerged during the dot-com bust when so many of the startups and other small companies were really uh, scared, terrified of very bleak outlook. How are we going to monetize data? And what happened to break through that wall to create 
a vision of a new capitalism, two things. One was a discovery and the other was a big idea to put that discovery to work. The discovery was that every internet connected action that people undertake, whether they're aware of it, like just getting online the way we are now, or unaware of it, like passing hidden cameras and, and sensors in buildings or even on, on the street, every one of those connections leaves a trail of highly predictive behavioral signals that are visible only to the machines. So when we're leaving this trail, we don't know it. And this is worth emphasizing for a moment because, you know, there's been so much talk, this phrase, the attention economy has become a, a sort of knee jerk description. But in fact, this is not an attention economy because these signals are being thrown off from our behavior and are being collected about our behavior when we're not paying attention, when we don't even know it and we have no control over it. So the big discovery here was that not only could these human signals be discerned and captured, they could be discerned and captured in ways that turned out to be highly predictive of future behavior. So we're talking about things like the tone of your voice, the patterns of your life, the stoop of your shoulders, all of these things captured outside users' awareness, redefined as corporate assets, as corporate property, aggregated, analyzed, and computed for behavioral predictions. Wow, that was a really big discovery. No one had understood this before, that as long as we're connected, everything we do is available to anyone who has the means to capture it and analyze it. All right. So what was the big idea that accompanied this huge discovery? The big idea, and it came very quickly, was that predictions of human behavior could be sold. They could be sold just like tons of wheat or barrels of oil. These human futures could be traded just like any other commodity. So here we have the commodification, not of the natural world, but of the human world. And of course, the first big example of this commodification was the click-through rate, which was an analysis that was sold as a black box to advertisers, uh, the first solid gold commodity market in human futures. And of course, what it did was to promise advertisers that if they place their ads where the click-through rate told them to, um, then they would get a much higher probability of engagement and ultimately purchases from users. So here we are, revolutionizing the ad industry. And for the sake 
of revolutionizing the ad industry, we decided to invade and steal every signal of human behavior that could possibly be collected. Now, it's important to say that this discovery and the big idea that applied it emerged at Google. When Google was just another startup, a search engine, people thought of it as having, you know, the smartest guys around, the best search engine, but even they didn't know how to monetize data. This breakthrough occurred at Google and everything else is history. So we're talking about commodification, folks. So that means we're talking about economics. And what's really important to know here is that this whole thing was engineered for economic success. It wasn't engineered to discover truth or meaning. It was engineered to get the highest volume of signals through the systems at the highest possible speed so that the most predictions could be produced and therefore these ad markets could evolve fast with ever-growing sophistication and accuracy. So this is what I call blindness by design. We don't care what these signals are. We don't care what they mean. We don't care what they're about. We don't care if they're true or false. We don't care if they represent what the sender wanted to convey or didn't want to convey. None of that matters. As long as the signals are flowing, they can be captured and analyzed predictively. That's what mattered. These are economies of scale in the capture of the human. So it's always good to have a little example to throw out because some of this stuff, you know, it's so hard to even imagine in our heads because it's all so unprecedented. And, you know, some people who are alive today, today, December 2023, pretty soon 2024, and you're hearing about AI, reading about AI, talking about AI, artificial intelligence. Somehow, like, we've gotten the impression that AI is something new. AI is not something new. It's been there from the beginning. And right from the beginning, the Google founders referred to their search engine back in the year 2000 as our AI. But now let's fast forward to 2018. The company now is Facebook, another leading surveillance capitalist by that time. And we had a leaked memo in 2018 that described what Facebook calls its AI hub. And in that AI hub, they talk about their machines ingesting trillions of data points about us and producing thousands of models about our behavior each and every day. And these trillions of data points and thousands of models are then used to generate 6 million behavioral predictions every second. That's economies of scale in the commodification of human behavior. 
So that's the capitalism. Did this turn out to be lucrative? We could say so. All we have to do is look at the market capitalization of companies like Google and Facebook and, uh, of course, Amazon and Microsoft and Apple, all of the huge platforms that are, of course, benefiting enormously from surveillance capitalism. And even if you just look at the pure plays, the surveillance capitalist pure plays like Google and Facebook, look at their market capitalization. And um, that's just uh, that's just a number of how the market values these capabilities, the prediction of human behavior. And so uh, this turned out to be lucrative beyond anybody's wildest dreams. So this brings us to the surveillance. Surveillance meant that they realized right at the beginning that if we knew that everything we did was subject to this, you know, suctioning it out of our lives and then turning it into corporate property to predict our behavior for their commercial advantage. They understood early on that users would not be happy to know this, that users would resist. We would rebel. We would look for alternatives. We would look for ways to hide all of which represents friction in this system. And the other thing that they were really afraid of was uh, lawmakers, the democratic process. They really feared that lawmakers learning about this, understanding this, would immediately go to work creating laws that would criminalize this kind of activity and call it what it really is. When you take something from someone without their knowledge, and you use it for your own advantage, that's called theft. That's called stealing. And once lawmakers got a whiff of that, it was likely that these kinds of procedures would be reconceptualized as uh, criminal activity. So all of it had to be secret. At Google, they called it the hiding strategy. It had to be secret. It had to be conducted in the shadows. And as long as they operated in the shadows, that meant doing it in a way that was undetectable, indecipherable, and at the same time, describing it in a way that made it seem perfectly nice and in our interests. That's why they talk about their commitment to privacy. And that's why they talk about their commitment to users. And that's why they talk about innovation and the idea of improving society. All of these things are standard code words in what became a pretty powerful dictionary of gaslighting propaganda that allowed them to keep us confused. And therefore, it really took a long time for us as a society to figure out what they're really doing there behind in the shadows and the hiding strategy. In other words, to put a to put a cork in it, this capitalism became extremely successful, but only because they used the one-way mirror of the surveillance relationship in order to implement it. Without those shadows, 
none of it would have been possible. So when we talk about the scope of the book, the aim of the book is to not only unpack these economic operations so that we can understand and see them clearly, but then to go the next step and understand the harms that these economic operations are perpetrating on our societies. And ultimately, the vision of society that is driving this work coming from what we call big tech, now these enormously huge and wealthy, powerful companies, uh, the vision of society that they're driving toward and the kind of power that they are amassing. So the book takes us through that arc of those three big pieces, what it is, what it does, and what it implies for our future. You write for people because you want them to change something, uh, to ask for change. It, uh, you are writing with a practical ambition. What is the practical ambition? Well, I think the first thing is um, I want people to understand that right now, Surveillance capitalism has become the dominant economic paradigm in our economies. So we think of it as something that's perpetrated distinctively by Silicon Valley. But now just look at any industry, any economic sector, and surveillance capitalism has become the dominant paradigm. For example, the 25 major global automobile brands all now practice surveillance capitalism. The research now shows that um, the amount of personal information, extremely intimate personal information that they are collecting from dashboards and all our interactions, all of our behavior, all of our speech, everything we do inside that automobile, these are now going into the same kind of data flows being analyzed in the same kind of ways I've been describing. They're being used to predict customer behavior. They're being used to uh, sell on to others who are interested in those predictions and so forth. You know, whether it's healthcare, education, finance, agriculture, real estate, whatever sector you want to look at, products and services across the board have become lost leaders for the kinds of human data that they can collect. So the first thing is that this is big. It's deeply institutionalized and it's not going anywhere. And why should we care? Companies are making money. They tell us that they're innovating. Why should we care? Isn't this just somehow the inevitable face of the digital age. I was doing an event the other day and one uh, person in the audience made a comment and um, she used an interesting metaphor. She said, isn't this inevitable? It's like the wind. We can't stop the wind. You know, how can we possibly stop this? And one of the great triumphs of the companies is that they have persuaded us over these past two decades that their brand of digital capitalism is indeed inevitable. But surveillance capitalism is not the wind. Surveillance capitalism was invented by clever people to do an end run around many human rights and freedoms, to do an end run around the 
values and principles of a democratic society, all the while not only hiding what they were doing, but telling us how inevitable it was and that this is, of course, the nature of the digital future and who wants to dare stand up against what they call, quote, innovation. If somebody said to you, Shoshana, I have an easy time living with this innovation because it does so many good things for me. And yes, I understand that there are certain changes involved, but I perceive the gains as considerably outweighing uh, the downsides. On your terms, they, it seems like they are making a mistake on their terms, right? So what would you, what would you say to them? So the first thing I understand is that this economic paradigm that I've been telling you about, this institution, it has evolved over the last, especially 20, 25 years. And um, at each level of development, you know, just like with um, human creatures, uh, we walk before we run. And there's a there's stages of development. The later stages build on the capabilities that we develop early on. So that's what we're facing here. And in order to achieve everything I've just described to you, this capture of human-generated data across the board from every aspect of our lives, just to achieve that in merely 20 years, that has translated into the wholesale destruction of privacy. There is no more privacy. Certainly, privacy, the way we thought about it even as recently as the year 2000, simply no longer exists. So, That's a pretty big deal because the idea of how do you have a democratic society where in a democracy we think of subjects such as human agency, human autonomy, human decision rights, fundamental rights that are inalien to the individual human being. Well, once there is no more privacy, These inalienable rights are impossible to sustain. So a society without privacy becomes a very different society. When we talk about a democratic society, one of the first things that comes to mind are principles of equality and principles of fairness. And justice is a kind of principle that requires equality, and fairness. But in a world in which there is no privacy, where private companies now have infinite knowledge about us and we have very little knowledge about them, nor do we have any knowledge about what they actually know about us. So what's happened is instead of more equality, a whole new access of inequality has opened up. And this inequality is measured by the growing gap between what I can know and what can be known about me. So this creates a very dangerous situation and I want to talk about that in a moment. But before we get to that, I want to mention the second big harm that really comes right on the heels of the big breakthrough discovery and the big idea to use it that I've already explained to you, 
what happens when we're creating these massive systems that are blind by design and we're solving for volume and speed of these behavioral data flows, these systems are not engineered for any of the principles that we normally think about as essential to communications in a stable, thriving, healthy, and especially democratic society. Instead, we're just trying to get as many signals as possible. We're solving for volume and speed. So there is no interest in true or false. There is no interest in meaning. And that has created the conditions that most of us around the world are now very worried about. We call it disinformation. We call it misinformation. The fact that our information and communication spaces are now dominated by these systems, which are engineered to be formally indifferent to the quality of information that flows through them. This is an astonishing fact. I'm struck and, uh, Maybe some of you will be struck by this too. In very recently, it was um, spring of 2022, where Dr. Robert Califf, who was the new commissioner in the United States, the Food and Drug Agency. And it was in the spring of 2022 that he went public, including going on CNN, to talk about the fact that they had become aware of at the Food and Drug Agency. And that fact was that misinformation had become the leading cause of death in America and having a dramatic effect on the life expectancy of Americans in the United States. This is mind-blowing fact. And yet, you know, Dr. Karleff, he, he went public, he spoke, he finished his sentence. And honestly, compared to the gravity of what he told us, there was hardly anything done about it. This is an astonishing thing. So disinformation isn't just a, um, you know, it's just, it's not an inconvenience. We're in, a, we're in a state of affairs now where most people are getting their news information from the platforms, not from journalistic institutions. And yet we know that these um, platforms now dominate our information and communication spaces and that the integrity of information is not a priority. In fact, they're not even capable of producing information integrity because their systems are not engineered to do so. They're solving for volume and speed. So we're in a situation where we're in a in the digital century where in the early years of an information civilization and our information and communication spaces have become not only completely untrustworthy, but actually lethal. So we see the evolution of this problem. First, 
they take our data. Second, they use it to solve for volume and speed for economic advantages. And finally, we see that producing such corruption of information that it produces chaos and dysfunction and democratic breakdown in our societies. At the next level, we see that with all of the knowledge that they have, these vast flows of knowledge about people and society, we have a situation where these largest corporations and their ecosystems now have absolute monopoly control over knowledge production and distribution. So they own the global market structure of what we're calling artificial intelligence. What knowledge is produced, they decide. How is that knowledge utilized? They decide. Who gets access to that knowledge? They decide. And increasingly what we see happening in one company after another, from Google to Facebook, all the way down the line, we see that they are shutting down operations where they were using these data flows, their computational power and their analytical capabilities. They own all the science and they own all the scientists, but to a certain extent they've been using some of these capabilities and resources to actually you know, investigate scientific problems. But now we see that they're shutting down their work in pure science in favor of using all of their resources, all of their capital to do the kind of knowledge creation that furthers their own commercial goals. So instead of what was I reading recently, an article about Meta shutting down its protein folding research, right? Because instead they want to be using all of their resources to answer questions like, if I can get Matthias Rizza to stay on this page for another two minutes, how does that translate into revenue? What's really tragic here, Matthias, is the opportunity cost for global society. Because anywhere you look in the world and you ask people, what do we want from this digital century? We want to solve for global warming. We're all excited about having data. We want to have data. We want to have knowledge. But we want to solve for those critical problems that are affecting all of our lives, our communities, our futures, our families, our children. That's where the extraordinary capabilities of knowledge production should be focused. So when you look at the surveys, look at all the data, we want to solve for problems like global warming. We want to solve for problems like health care, cancer research. We want to solve for problems like education and giving, getting every child in the world a great education. We want to solve for problems like equality. We want to solve for problems like inclusive societies and inclusive prosperity. Instead, we have the giants with 
concentrations now, not only of great economic power, concentrations of knowledge and the social power that comes with that knowledge and the governance power that comes with that knowledge. So we're looking at these behemoth institutions that are able to literally have a lock on the future of knowledge. They decide what it will be. And the future of knowledge now means the future of society. And so we're really in a face-off between who decides what will be the future of knowledge and with it the future of society. Will it be all of us? Will it be we the people under democratic processes who decide? Or will it be these companies and the people who run them and their data priests Will it be they who decide based on their economic advantage and their amassing of unprecedented power to influence social behavior, to influence the behavior of individuals and populations with all the knowledge that they have, and increasingly, therefore, to take over more and more governance functions in our societies? So let me just ask you one final question. So in terms of what's on people's minds right now, the emergence of the generative AI systems like ChatGPT or Claude or in the image domain, MidJourney, um, how do they fit in your the way you think about what's what's happening uh, in our electronic surroundings? Or if I use these um, these systems, how am I getting involved with surveillance capitalism? So what we've been talking about are systems that begin and institutions that depend upon for their very foundations, that original big idea that we can extract human data from every aspect of human behavior, every aspect of human action and, and interaction. And we can do this at scale and Once we're talking about concentrations of the human, all bets are off because this is entirely unprecedented. This has never existed before. So we talk about now building on those huge data flows, concentrations of computational knowledge. And those are the things that allow the companies to learn about what they consider it important and to learn more about us than we know about ourselves or could learn about each other. With all of that computational knowledge, they've invented the means, it goes under euphemism, things like targeting and so forth, to reach out back to us with subliminal cues that shape our behavior as individuals and collectives. And ultimately, with all of this knowledge concentration, concentration of social power, these create the stepping stones so that increasingly they're sitting on unilateral control of what we think of as critical infrastructure for our societies. 
So that's our communication systems. That's our information systems. Every single step along the way is absolutely essential to what we mean when we use the term artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence begins, its very possibility begins with the massive flows of human generated data. When we talk about training models, we talk about large language models, all of that is just a, another language for talking about the enormous secret activity of scraping and concentrating every aspect of activity that's going on in society, whether it's going on in the books that have been written and the other forms of human expression that have been produced, going on in our, in our behavior, uh, going on in our speech, whatever domain it is, it is these huge concentrations of human data flows that are the foundations of artificial intelligence and have been understood that way thoroughly for the past 20 to 25 years. Now, the reason that this has become front and center over the last eight months or so, I'm speaking to you now in uh, November 2023, and you're probably going to be hearing this in December of 2023. So it's really the last uh, long period in the, in the year 2023 that a shift has been undertaken. And that shift was to release some of these capabilities into the consumer space and give consumers some of these uh, tools to play with, let's call it that, um, something like ChatGDP or some of the others. But these very primitive tools are built on every single aspect of the surveillance capitalist institutional order that we've been discussing. So there really is no light between this institutional order and you know, the various startups that you've been reading about, hearing about, and maybe you've been experimenting with some of the tools. What we understand now, this started off six, eight months ago, with a lot of interest in the AI startups and um, the key piece of propaganda, the idea of innovation, that word innovation, you know, has been a very prominent word, AI startups. Well, by now, there's a lot more clarity. And what I'm saying that, you know, all this is, is the whole surveillance uh, capitalist institutional process packaged slightly differently. And that's becoming clear because what we see now is that the startups are understanding that they cannot be successful without access to the vast data flows that only the corporate giants have. Only the Googles and the Facebooks and the Microsoft and the Amazons and so forth have these data flows. So one by one, we see each of these startups drifting back to the mothership. Most recently, a huge chunk of OpenAI, one of the biggest of these so-called startups, has broken off 
and has now been integrated into Microsoft in a kind of scandalous explosion. This has been happening now for the last several months. These AI startups cannot survive without the concentrations of knowledge and social power and governance capabilities and just sheer wealth, capital, the scientists and the science all concentrated in the corporate behemoths of big tech. So there's a kind of, you know, fantasy world that has been created here that generative AI or the foundational AI or, you know, that, that these things are somehow distinct from these capabilities, these institutional capabilities that have been building for 20 years. What's really worrisome now is how we muster our own agency as citizens and how we muster our democratic institutions and our lawmakers to finally now intervene in these processes and stand up to what we see occurring. I think a really important lesson from this discussion and it's not a new lesson, it's an old lesson that has been repeated by you know, social thinkers, social theorists and sociologists from time immemorial. And that is, that is that um, there really is no such thing as technology per se. There's no such thing as technology. Every technology is brought to life by very specific economic and political forces. And that's where our attention should be. What are the economic and political forces that are bringing a technology to life? So when we talk about AI, what we're talking about, and it sum up um, a lot of what, what I've said, is that we're, we're talking about simply uh, a way of packaging these capabilities that have been developed in the shadows for the last 20 years, um, these capabilities that have created these enormous concentrations, these new forms of inequality that have given a small number of corporations enormous power over people and society in a way that is catastrophic for the ambitions of democracy and a democratic people. So what do we do now? What do we do now? And what do we do pretty soon? What do we do now and in the near future? You know, during the same period that so much has been happening under the rubric of AI. We've also heard a lot about regulation. And we've seen, you know, meetings at the White House in the United States of America. We've seen meetings in Congress, uh, meetings with tech leaders. We, we're seeing very substantial work going on in Europe, centered in Brussels around a new artificial intelligence act. Regulation is finally being discussed. But what is this regulation going to achieve? Is it going to be enough 
And is regulation the beginning of the story or the end of the story? Well, I'd like to share a quick example with you. We talk about all the data that a company like Google is uh, acquiring from us in the shadows secretly. And what happens to this, these data, we know they're turned into predictions. And then these predictions are sold to advertisers and advertisers bid with these uh, predictive analyses that are sold to them. Advertisers bid on whose screen they get the right to put their, their ads on. So this is called real-time bidding data. And what we know about real-time bidding data is that in the United States, where there has been very little privacy law, Google broadcasts its real-time bidding data on every American adult 747 times a day. So 747 times a day, hundreds and hundreds of categories of personal data about you, if you live in America, are being broadcast to the ad tech layer and onto the advertisers for the privilege of bidding on getting their ad on your screen. Now, let's go to Europe, where there is a lot of privacy regulation, the best privacy laws in the world. In Europe, Google broadcasts those same kinds of data, hundreds of categories of very intimate data about individuals 376 times a day. So is it better than what happens in America? Yes, it's better. Does regulation make a difference? Yes, it does. Does it make enough of a difference? My answer to that is no. I'm not happy about my data being broadcast 376 times a day. Thank you very much. So we've got this conundrum where at the beginning of the digital century, back when the big idea and the big breakthrough that implemented it and gave birth to the new economics of surveillance capitalism, when all of that was invented right then, we should have had our lawmakers standing up and saying, this is fundamentally incompatible with democracy. It's fundamentally incompatible with human rights and freedoms. And therefore we are not going to allow it to stand. These kinds of procedures simply cannot be lawful. We're going to criminalize them. We're going to call them the stealing that they are. Now, all these years later, we are vulnerable. We are naked because our lawmakers failed to intervene 20 years ago and they failed to intervene 10 years ago. And therefore, despite even in Europe where we have some, you know, very powerful regulation, we are still naked, stripped naked by these companies in a world where surveillance capitalism has grown, rooted, and flourished to become the dominant economic paradigm. All right. So there's a clear, rational implication of this. And it's the kind of thing that we now have to start discussing. And that is we've got to go back to the beginning where they figured out how to work in the shadows, how to extract behavioral signals from everything we do 
in order to affect the commodification of everything human. And it is that foundation that became the basis for the whole worldwide growth of surveillance capitalism and continues to be the basis for the growth and spread of artificial intelligence now being inserted into every kind of human activity and every kind of service and every kind of product. We have to go back to that original sin. And finally, we have to say, this must be abolished because this stealing of human behavior, this stealing of all human activity, converting it into data, turning it into corporate property, commodifying it for the sake of corporate wealth, social and governance power, this has become catastrophic for democracy. It's breaking down, it's weakening our institutions, it's wreaking havoc in our societies through the corruption of information. It's destroying equality because of the complete destruction of privacy and the concentrations of knowledge that have given these companies so much extraordinary power. Therefore, we have to finally challenge the most foundational activities that these companies are engaged in whether it's the automobile companies or whether it's Google, the idea that they can secretly extract whatever they want about our behavior, turn it into data, use that data to create their wealth and power. The abolition of these fundamental processes that have proven to be catastrophic for democracy, for society, and for the quality of our individual lives. Finally, we have to make this the conversation that we introduce into our families, into our communities, and the conversation that we demand our lawmakers participate in. Every month, every year that we allow ourselves to believe that there's nothing we can do, that we allow ourselves to believe that this state of affairs is inevitable, that we allow ourselves to believe that it's like the wind and there's nothing we can do about it. Every month and year that we allow to pass is another month and another year that we see democracy eroding and we see our rights and freedoms as individuals being narrowed to a point where what are the questions we ask ourselves now? How do we hide? Where do we escape? How do we camouflage? How do we somehow escape or exit these forces? And of course, it's become impossible to do so. So the tendency is to think of democracy as old and slow, to think of democracy as something that uh, was relevant in another century, but now is lost to the digital century. I, for one, refuse to conclude that. I believe that democracy is still the greatest idea that the human race has given birth to, and that even though democracy is older and is slow, 
being old and slow are actually benefits because they give democracy strengths that even the most powerful tech company cannot match. For one thing, democracy is the only institution truly able to inspire action. And we see that all over the world every day, just as we've lived now to see this animate the population of the Ukraine, as people have put everything on the line to fight back for the purposes of preserving a democratic future. So democracy inspires action and democracy is the only other institution that can face off with surveillance capitalism because it alone retains the authority and the power to make and impose and enforce the kinds of laws that advance the prospect of democracy and democratic governance. Democracy is the one power that is most feared by its foes, most feared by its pretenders, and chief among its foes and pretenders are the big tech platforms, their ecosystems, and the other corporations from every economic sector who are following in their footsteps. So I put my money on democracy, and I'm asking you to engage with me and with others in your community, starting right now in a new conversation that says, the commodification of the human cannot stand. It must not stand. Because once we do that, we become objects to ourselves. And all of the consequences have already proven to be catastrophic for the prospects of a digital and democratic century. Thank you for being with us today, Shoshana. Thank you again for having me, Matthias. Maggie again. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Matthias and Shoshana Zuboff. If you want to learn more about Shoshana's work, please visit her website, shoshanazuboff.com. Thanks to our podcast team, Allie Gilliard, Rachel Harris, and Peter Kokoma. You can find Justice Matters on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps us reach more people. And let us know what you think. You can email us directly at car underscore center at hks.harvard.edu. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.